1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about Martin Cahill, the one-time leader of a robbery gang operating out of Dublin, Ireland. But more than that, Cahill is one of Ireland's most prolific criminals of all time and was responsible for some of the country's biggest robberies. But without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Martin Cahill was born on May 23, 1949 in Dublin, Ireland. Martin was born the second of 12 surviving children to his father Patrick Cahill who was an alcoholic that worked as a lightkeeper and his mother Agnes Sheehan. Martin was born and raised in Dublin's slum district throughout Grenville Street in Dublin's north inner city. Not to mention living in a poverty-stricken neighborhood, Cahill's alcoholic father spent most of his money on booze, and as a result, by the time he was in school, he and his older brother John were stealing food to make sure the family wouldn't go hungry, which was really Martin's first foray into crime. When he was 11 years old, his family decided to leave the seedy area that surrounded their home on Grenville Street and decided to move to a better neighborhood, and they moved to a suburb called Crumlin on the south side of Dublin. He and his siblings were sent to a Christian brother school on the same road where he lived, however, Martin started playing hooky and used his new free time to commit frequent burglaries with his brothers, receiving his first conviction for robbery at the young age of 12, but didn't serve any kind of significant time for it. At the age of 15, he attempted to join the Royal Navy, but was rejected after allegedly offering to break into houses for them, but also because of his criminal record. And at least in my opinion, this is where Cahill's life would take a turn. While he was already involved in the streets, he obviously wanted to try and make something of himself, but when he got rejected, I think that just sent him deeper into the world of crime. Because just one year after he attempted to join the Royal Navy, Martin at the age of 16 was convicted of two burglaries and sentenced to two years at an industrial school in the county of O'Fally run by Catholic missionaries. Industrial schools served as an alternative to prison for juvenile delinquents convicted of crimes. While Martin was serving as a sentence at the industrial school, his family relocated once again, this time to the Hollyfield buildings and Rath Mines on the south side of Dublin. However, the complex was a sink estate with a strong criminal subculture. Cahill was released from the industrial school in 1967 and soon met a local girl named Frances Lawless, who he married on March 16, 1968, and the couple went on to have five children. However, it's widely rumored that with Frances's approval, Cahill took up with another partner, his own wife's sister, Tina Lawless, with whom it's believed he fathered another four children. Soon after marrying his wife, Martin tried to go straight and provide legitimately for his family, but that wouldn't last long. He soon returned to a life of crime, teaming back up with his brothers to commit multiple burglaries in the affluent neighborhoods nearby. But by this point, the brothers were ready for more than just low-level burglaries, and at some point around this time, they robbed the depot for confiscated firearms belonging to the Garda Ciocana, which is Ireland's National Police Service. And by the early 70s, police with the Dublin Central Detective Unit had identified the Cahill brothers as major criminals when they teamed up with the notorious Dunn Gang to rob security vans escorting cash from banks. However, in 1970, Martin was arrested and convicted for possession of stolen goods and was sentenced to three years in prison, but just like clockwork, when he was released in 1973, he returned immediately to his usual routine of burglary and armed robbery, working with his brothers and other local hoods from the Hollyfield buildings, with the group really becoming more of a burglary gang than just a group of small-time quick thieves. But even with this going for Cahill, it seems he just wasn't able to break the cycle of going from prison back to a life of crime, which just sent him back to prison again. 
1977, he was given a four-year suspended sentence for receiving a stolen car. However, while he was locked up this time around in 1978, the Dublin city government began preparing to demolish the Hollyfield buildings. Cahill, while locked up, fought through the courses to prevent his neighborhood's destruction, but despite his efforts, the demolition went through. However, when he was released from prison early in 1980, instead of trying to find a new place to live, Cahill simply pitched a tent on the site of his former home. Finally, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Ben Briscoe, paid a visit to Cahill's tent and was able to persuade him to move into a new house in a more upscale district of Rathmines. This time Martin got out of prison, he was determined to never go back. As he always did when he got out, he immediately returned to a life of crime, but was ready to elevate his game, beginning his ascension from a simple small-time gang leader to the head of a legitimate criminal organization, a ruthless one at that. In 1981, Cahill was charged with armed robbery and released on bail, but he wasn't just going to lay down and take his time. While awaiting trial, he broke into the district court building and set fire to it using his own trial folder as kindling, and the fire caused the court to be closed for several weeks. But in 1982, Cahill started to become paranoid about the increasing role that forensic science could play in detecting his robberies, and in May 1982, Cahill ordered a bomb be placed under the car of Dr. James O'Donovan, who was the state's chief forensic scientist and a witness in an armed robbery case against Cahill. However, the bomb only ended up mutilating O'Donovan's legs and his eyesight was permanently impaired and for the rest of his life he would live with chronic pain. But despite the horrible act he had just committed, the only thing on Cahill's mind was planning his gang's first huge score that would pave their way to infamy. In July 1983, Cahill and his gang robbed O'Connor's jewelry factory at Harold's Cross on the south side of Dublin. The gang made off with gold and diamonds worth about $2.6 million, worth about $7.6 million today, but the criminals were only able to fence the goods for a fraction of their value. But the damage the gang caused went far beyond the jewelry stolen, and as a result of the heist, the factory closed, destroying hundreds of jobs. However, the height garnered Cahill's nickname, The General. In 1984, Cahill was charged with the robbery, but was acquitted on a technicality. The take from the heist gave Cahill the opportunity to expand his business much further than just burglary, and he began financing local drug dealers. He also began employing his men to shake down restaurants and hot dog vendors in Dublin's nightclub district. By this point, Cahill was still receiving unemployment benefits, which was good in his case because it proved he had at least some form of legitimate income. But when his benefits were cut around this time, he had an inspector in the Department of Social Welfare named Brian Purcell kidnapped and shot in the legs. However, in 1984, he made his first big mistake as a crime boss when he confronted the Irish Republican Army, also known as the IRA, which was an Irish paramilitary group that was established to halt British rule in Northern Ireland using armed forces, eventually becoming somewhat of a militant group that worked in tandem with the Irish Nationalist Party. Cahill confronted the IRA when the Republican-influenced activist group named Concerned Parents Against Drugs picketed against drug dealers, and in response, Cahill orchestrated resistance through a group he created called the Concerned Criminals Action Committee, which intimidated members of the parents' organization. Obviously, the IRA couldn't have that and in turn kidnapped two Cahill associates, but pulled back when Irish police arrested and kidnapped people employed by the IRA, and it was around this time that Cahill gave his first press interviews, which I don't have to tell you is such an awful idea for anybody in their life. By this point, Martin was one of several doubling gang bosses that came to symbolize the growth of organized crime throughout the country, and Cahill was the one who most displayed a compulsive desire to just humiliate the Irish government. He walked flamboyantly into police barracks to gain alibis during crimes that police knew he orchestrated, and he stole weapons from the police technical bureau and files from the director of public prosecution's office. Cahill presented himself as a rebel against authority who was driven to crime by poverty and social injustice. He claimed that a society that tolerated, quote, the misery of the dull cues was itself criminal. Only admitted criminals were honest because they were not hypocrites. His eccentricities made him seem untouchable and emphasized his violent, unpredictable, erratic power. One unintentional advantage he gave himself was that his elaborate capers diverted all the attention away from his countless smaller robberies carried out by his gang. 
But even with the media spotlight on him, he was planning his biggest score yet, not to mention one of the largest in Ireland's history. The Rustborough House is a house that in 1986 was owned by former Irish politician and philanthropist Sir Alfred Bate, located in the town of Wicklow, south of Dublin on the east side of the island. But one thing about Sir Alfred is that he was an avid art enthusiast, and when he moved to the Rustborough House, he moved his entire art collection there that featured genuine masterpieces, and while I'm sure it was great to own, it offered up a great location for a huge score. But Cahill wasn't the first smart guy to think of the idea. In 1974, an IRA gang led by former debutante-turned-militant group member Rose Dugdale broke into the Rustborough House, making up with 19 paintings, including paintings by renowned artists like Francisco Goya, Johannes Vermeer, and Thomas Gainsborough. The stolen paintings were valued at $10.5 million, and in the process, the baits were pistol-whipped, tied up, and pushed down a flight of stone stairs. The IRA held the painting sausage, essentially in exchange for the release of two IRA members, but all the paintings were recovered a few weeks later. And while that was a pretty big score in its own right, Cahill wanted to go much bigger. For him, this wasn't about the money. It was about making a statement and showing the government that he could do whatever he wanted. And on May 1st, 1986, he was ready to go for it. Instead of storming the house like Rose Dugdale, Cahill and his gang broke in quietly at 2 a.m., cutting a pane out of one of the French doors that opened to the back of the property. At some point when they were inside, the infrared alarm sounded and the group left the house and hid in some bushes. Retired Irish Army Colonel Michael O'Shea, who was the administrator of Alfred Bates' art collection, toured the building's ground floor but found nothing suspicious, so he and the police who arrived shortly after decided it was a false alarm. An hour later, the group entered the house again, and in just six minutes, they made off with 18 paintings, including a Vermeer and a Goya, as well as some of the other most valuable works in the collection. Estimates of the value of the paintings stolen in the heist range from 30 to 45 million dollars, and that's without inflation. This was considered to be one of the biggest art heists in the world at the time and resulted in a major international police operation. But by some stroke of luck, it wasn't aimed at Cahill. A detective at the scene was quoted as saying, quote, The IRA is short of cash and they may have stolen the pictures again for ransom. The very day after the heist, seven of the 18 paintings, which were the least commercially valuable, were discovered in a ditch near the Rustborough House, four miles from the scene of the crime by a group of boys fishing near the mansion, and all the paintings recovered were still in good condition. The remaining 11 paintings were hidden in a bunker that was prepared beforehand, and after ruling out the IRA's involvement, Cahill became the National Police Force's top suspect, but by this point in his career, he had garnered so much power in the Dublin underworld that no one was even going to think about informing on him. Despite that, rumors began circulating that the paintings were being hidden in the mountains of Wicklow County, but other than that, there were no solid leads. And while Cahill might have thought he got away with the crime of the decade, he was sorely mistaken. Despite all the planning I'm sure he did in the lead up to the heist, he forgot about one extremely crucial factor. These were world-renowned famous paintings, simply too famous to attract any legitimate buyer because there was just way too much heat that came with them. And much like the jewelry factory theft three years before, Cahill completely neglected the fact that while they were both big scores in both cases, he was only able to fence the goods for a fraction of what they were actually worth. Cahill held the Vermeer for a $20 million ransom, but as you'd probably assume, it wasn't paid, and when the plan failed, it became clear that Cahill simply lacked the right contacts to pass the paintings onto international art theft rings. According to a report, Cahill's taste in art extended only to, quote, cherry scenes like the cheap print in his living room of swans on a river, but he believed the stolen masterpieces would bring him a fortune. With some of the gang members later saying that Cahill had no respect for the fragile paintings and treated them with contempt. And when Cahill realized he wasn't going to be able to fool an art dealer into buying them or an art thief, he really became desperate and tried to reach out to anybody that would take the paintings off his hands. So he approached a paramilitary group called the UVF, which stood for the Ulster Volunteer Force. He sold a few paintings to the group's leader, Billy Wright, who wanted to use them in an arms deal. Two of the group's members were arrested in Turkey with a painting in 1990. Also in 1990, another painting turned up in the heroin circuit of Istanbul, while two years later, another painting was taken from a van transporting drugs in London, and the Vermeer was said to have been deposited into a Luxembourg bank vault. 
Most of the paintings passed through the hands of various criminals and were eventually tracked down and recovered in police stings in Belgium, Turkey, and England. In September 1993, Vermeer's lady writing a letter, Goy's portrait of Spanish actress Dona Antonio Zarate, and a work by Dutch miniaturist Metsu were recovered in the city of Antwerp by Dutch police acting on the advice of the Irish National Police Force. And while most of the paintings stolen in the heist were recovered, three still remain missing to this day. All the recovered paintings were eventually returned to Sir Alfred Bates' collection, which was subsequently donated to the state and housed in the National Gallery. And in the end, Cahill is thought to have made somewhere between $600,000 and $800,000 for paintings that on the illegitimate market could have fetched anywhere from $20 to $50 million. And while Cahill had executed one of the most infamous robberies in Irish history and made a decent profit in the process, the Rustboro House art heist spelled the end for Cahill and his gang. Just a year after the heist was carried out, around December of 1987, the Irish National Police Force mounted extensive surveillance efforts against Cahill and his gang. And then in February 1988, a news report identified Martin Cahill as the man behind the O'Donovan bomb plot, the Bay Art Collection robbery, and the robbery of O'Connor's Jewel Factory. As a result, the National Police Force set up a surveillance unit that was nicknamed Tango Squad. Tango Squad was used to specifically target and monitor Cahill's gang on a permanent 24-7 basis, and Cahill was given the call sign Tango 1. The unit also placed a direct present on the estate owned by Cahill in Rathmines, Dublin, positioning a surveillance unit in the home of John Sisk, whose house was directly in front of Cahill's. By this point, he had been indicted on charges relating to the art and jewel heist as well as the Donovan car bombing and was taken through a rain bin. During the surveillance operation, the incredibly frustrated Cahill verbally abused neighbors while trying to stay in line with the judge's requirements to remain on bond. But following the arrest of two Cahill's associates and an attempted robbery, he grew even more resentful about the police presence near his home, and on February 26, 1988, he ordered his men to slash the tires of 197 cars in the area, including 90 belonging to his neighbors. And when Cahill was arrested on suspicion of ordering the crime, he returned to his home to find his own Mercedes-Benz smashed and police standing around it waiting to read him his rights, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict him for the crime. And as the court process for Cahill's case began, he traveled to court surrounded by press photographers and he decided to make a spectacle of it. He always kept his face concealed either with a ski mask or his hands and he removed his outer layer of clothing to reveal Mickey Mouse underpants or a Batman t-shirt. While his antics made the National Police Force a laughing stock, his gang was severely disrupted and several of his close associates were put away. So Cahill immediately tried to replenish his ranks and maintain his image. While continuing to engage in burglaries, he started running protection rackets, looking for a less noticeable source of income as his health began to decline. Despite this though, he was planning another huge score. In early 1993, one gang member named John the Coach Trainer met with his boss Martin Cahill to provide him with information about the inner workings of the Irish National Bank head office and branch of the College Green Plaza in Dublin. Trainer told Cahill the bank regularly held more than $10 million in cash in the building. Cahill's plan was to abduct the bank's CEO, Jim Lacey, his wife, and four children and take them to an isolated hiding place where they would be held with another gang member, Jojo Cavanaugh, who would act as a fellow hostage with the intention to frighten Lacey into handing over every penny stored in the bank's vault. And on November 1st, 1993, Cahill's gang abducted Jim Lacey and his wife outside his home in the Black Rock suburb of Dublin. While the two were being held in Lacey's house, Jojo Cavanaugh was brought in and tied up, telling the family he had been kidnapped two weeks before. The next day, on November 2nd, Cavanaugh drove Lacey to College Green to collect the ransom money, with Lacey eventually withdrawing $300,000 from the ATM. After the cash had been handed over to the gang, Cavanaugh drove himself and Lacey to the local police station and told authorities that the pair had been kidnapped and forced to take part in a robbery. With the ransom note requesting payment of $10 million in cash, police began investigating and they quickly found that Cavanaugh had claimed child support money during his two-week faux capture and immediately arrested him. But he was released on bail at which point Cahill and Cavanaugh began planning to stage a home invasion on Cavanaugh's house to show intent to kill the Lacey family by shooting Cavanaugh in the leg. 
Kavanaugh was then to call the Irish newspapers from his hospital bed and claim he was a victim of the Lacey kidnapping gang. However, the plan failed and the gang was arrested and Cahill immediately went to hiding. On May 1st, 1994, the UVA paramilitary group attempted to bomb a crowded Republican pub in Dublin which led to a bouncer being shot when the assailants tried to escape. However, Cahill was suspected of carrying it out on behalf of the UVF because of his previous links to the Loyalists. And in the same year, when all the gang members involved in the kidnapping were released on bail on August 18, 1994, Cahill finally felt comfortable enough to go out in public again and left his second house in Swan Grove, Dublin and began driving to a local shop. But upon reaching the intersection of Oxford and Charleston Road, just a few hundred yards away from his home, he was repeatedly shot in the face and upper torso and died instantly at the age of 45. The gunman, who was armed with a 357 Magnum revolver, jumped on a motorcycle and fled the scene. To this day, 28 years later, no one has been charged with the murder, but of course there are numerous theories about who killed Martin Cahill and why. Within hours of his death, the IRA claimed responsibility in a press release who claimed the reason for the killing was Cahill's involvement with the UVF. The UVF had recently attempted a bomb attack on a South Dublin pub that was hosting a fundraiser for a Republican party. The IRA further alleged that Cahill had been involved in selling the stolen Vermeer paintings from the Rustborough House to the UVF Mid-Ulster Brigade led by Billy Wright. Wright and the Mid-Ulster Brigade then found some paintings for money that they used to fund arms trafficking from South Africa. The deal Cahill made with Billy Wright allegedly sealed his fate and put him at the very top of an IRA hit list. In a later statement, the IRA said Cahill participated in, quote, involvement with an assistance to pro-British death squads which forced us to act. However, another theory surfaced after the publication of a book titled The General by author Paul Williams in 2003 that claims to have insight from the police investigators who were still looking into Cahill's murder. Allegedly, two of Cahill's underlings, John Gilligan and John Trainer, had put together a massive hash trafficking ring while paying protection money to the IRA and Irish National Liberation Army. But when Cahill tried to also extort protection money from his underlings, the police believed Trainer and Gilligan approached the IRA and accused Cahill of importing heroin, a drug that the IRA despised and were trying to prevent from being sold in Dublin. And allegedly, it was this and his associations with the UVF that gave the IRA reason to order his assassination. However, despite the reason he was killed, his story doesn't quite end there. You can make the case that Cahill's criminal career was the driving force behind Irish government forming the Criminal Assets Bureau in 1996 to seize the assets of those who were both convicted of crimes and also those who were extremely wealthy but seemingly had no obvious means of income. The CIB was set up to focus mainly on high-profile drug dealers but had an open approach to all convicted criminals. Cahill denied ever being involved in drug dealing, however, his brother Peter was convicted of supplying heroin in the 1980s. In 1984, Cahill bought his growing family a house in the Coper Downs development on the south side of Dublin, paying $80,000 cash despite having no paid formal employment, since he left his first and only job in 1969. And sadly, as a result, on May 1st, 2005, 11 years after Cahill's death under an agreement with his widow Frances, the CAB seized and subsequently sold the property. However, Cahill's life lives on in his biographical film titled The General, directed by British film director John Borman and starring big-time Irish actor Brendan Gleeson. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I know today was a shorter episode, but I hope you enjoyed it all the same. If you'd like to support the podcast, it'd be great if you could follow, like, and share the podcast, as well as the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod. But with that said, I hope everybody has a great rest of their day. This is your host, Bliss Greaves, signing out.